And this lack of information precludes many on the left to abandon comfortable beliefs and apprehend the complexity of the actual Cuban situation and try to understand and see the actual Cuban people. There is clearly this void of information and this void has been filled through decades by Cuban and also the United States political political propaganda. So it's all political propaganda. So all the information we have is those two blocks, two polarities, two, everything is going back to the uh, worst years of the uh, Cold War. And propaganda and political uh, binarism are not helping the Cuban people. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's event, What's Happening in Cuba. Um, I'm Natalia. I am a member of the New York City DSA. I do labor organizing, and um, I'm a member of the Tempest Collective. My plan today is to speak for as little as possible because we have three amazing Cuban panelists today who are going to do most of the talking. Um, This meeting is to discuss the recent protests in Cuba and how they relate to solidarity and anti-imperialism and socialism. It's sponsored by the Internationalism from Below, New Politics and Haymarket Books. And it's part of a series. So if you like this meeting, there's going to be more what's happening in meetings coming up. Um, The next one is going to be next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern on what's happening in Iran. Um, Today, you know, we've been seeing unprecedented national spontaneous protests that took shape on July 11th for medicine, food, um, and against the handling of the COVID-19 by the Cuban government. Um, those were those happened in, in the beginning of July. Uh, the U.S. left has been very, very right to talk about condemning the blockade um, and the embargo. But we also have a responsibility to listen to the voices from Cuba and amongst Cubans about what these protests represent and how people on the ground experience the reality of life under the Cuban Communist Party that has ruled for more than 50 years. Together, these discussions can help develop a robust conversation about how we can best carry out anti-imperialist solidarity with the Cuban people. We're going to have three speakers today. I'm going to introduce them in turn. The first one is going to be Alina Barbara Lopez Hernandez. She's a Cuban intellectual and writer based in Matanzas, Cuba. She is a longtime contributor to the influential Cuban publication La Joven Cuba and is the author of several books, including Segundas Lecturas, Intelectualidad, Política y Cultura en la República Burguesa, El Desconocido Juan Marineo, Estudio de su Pensamiento Político, and En Tiempos de Blogosfera. Her latest article, Cuba, El Partido Único Ante la Crisis, can be found at jovencuba.com. Welcome, Alina. Eh, buenas tardes. Agradezco a News Politics y al resto de los organizadores la invitación a este espacio de debate. Primero, porque el tema es importante, yo diría crucial. Eh, 
Segundo, porque es alentadora la oportunidad de debatir públicamente sobre la situación actual de Cuba, cosa difícil para los intelectuales cubanos dentro de nuestro propio país. Y tercero, porque es un honor compartir con personas como de Casamayor y Samuel Farber. El tema a debatir es la situación eh, suscitada en Cuba tras el 11 de julio. Según el gobierno cubano, y así lo afirmó el pasado 19 de julio, Juan Antonio Quintanilla Román, representante permanente de Cuba en Ginebra, en Cuba no hubo un estallido social el domingo 11 de julio. Hubo disturbios, desórdenes en una escala muy limitada y causados por una operación comunicacional que se prepara desde hace tiempo desde el exterior del país. Esto es lo que afirma este funcionario. Esta perspectiva es totalmente equivocada. Fundamentaré mi, mi afirmación a continuación. En el 2021 se cumplen 35 años de que Fidera anunciara el inicio del proceso de rectificación de errores y tendencias negativas. También se conmemoran 14 años desde que Raúl notificara el proceso de reformas conocido como actualización de la economía cubana. En ninguno de los dos casos se lograron éxitos. En esas más de tres décadas se acumuló una enorme cantidad de deudas sociales, aumentaron la pobreza y la vulnerabilidad de amplios sectores, lo cual es evidente en determinados municipios, zonas y barrios. Entre estos sectores se cuentan los ancianos, jubilados o pensionados, las madres solteras que por divorcio o emigración de sus parejas tuvieron que asumir solas la crianza de los hijos, las personas negras y las que no están empleadas en el sector del turismo y en otros sectores privilegiados. Todas las personas en Cuba no han sufrido del mismo modo los años duros y la pobreza, tampoco son las mismas generaciones, ni la confianza, ni la paciencia o, o capacidad de resistencia, ni el nivel de compromiso político, ni existe ya el monopolio de la información y de las campañas ciudadanas. Especialmente desde la llegada de Raúl Castro al gobierno, aunque empezó desde antes, una parte sustancial del patrimonio económico nacional se ha sustraído a control popular y se encuentra bajo la égida del grupo de administración empresarial Gaesa, empresa adscrita al ministerio de la FARC. Este sector ha atraído la mayor parte de las inversiones en detrimento de otros como la agricultura, la industria, la ciencia, salud y educación, por citar apenas ejemplos clave. Por lo general, un estallido social tiene elementos catalizadores. El gobierno cubano responsabiliza en tal sentido a las medidas de presión sobre Cuba de la administración Trump, mantenidas en su mayor parte por el presidente Biden y a la situación de tensiones derivadas de la pandemia. Es real que eso agravó la situación de la isla. Sin embargo, no se menciona el peso que tuvieron como catalizadores internos de las protestas dos decisiones tomadas recientemente. En primer lugar, la denominada Tarea Ordenamiento, una reforma general de precios y salarios que comenzó en el mes de enero sin haberse acompañado por cambios estructurales y legislativos previos que reforzaran al sector privado interno y a la propia empresa pública. El gobierno niega que fuera esto una terapia de choque, pero el incremento salarial en medio de la crisis y carestía actuales ha disparado los precios de productos y servicios a niveles increíbles, absorbiendo en poco tiempo el salario real y deprimiéndolo nuevamente. 
Por otra parte, las desigualdades sociales se han incrementado por la polémica decisión de abrir establecimientos comerciales que solo venderían en dólares depositados en tarjetas magnéticas. El 11 de julio salieron a las calles de Cuba de cerca de 50 pueblos y ciudades, miles de personas con gran diversidad en todos los sentidos. Desde el punto de vista ideológico estuvieron los que desean un socialismo verdaderamente democrático, inclusivo y participativo, los que desearían una restauración del capitalismo nacional y hasta los que no tenían una claridad en sus ideas políticas pero exigen cambios inmediatos a sus precarias condiciones de vida. En cuanto a la representatividad etaria, existió gran presencia de jóvenes, incluso de adolescentes, pero también ancianos y personas de diversas edades. Hubo estudiantes universitarios, trabajadores, profesionales, obreros, desempleados, artistas, intelectuales. No se apreció liderazgo político alguno en las protestas ni de personas ni de organizaciones. Las mismas tuvieron un carácter desorganizado hasta anárquico si se quiere como todo estallido espontáneo en su mayoría fueron pacíficas aunque hubo actos de vandalismo y de violencia las redes sociales ayudaron al poder de convocatoria ello no fue exclusivo de Cuba y lo hemos visto en protestas de otros países como Francia con los chalecos amarillos y en Chile recientemente la tesis de que en Cuba se intenta un golpe blando contra el socialismo oculta la realidad Comprendo perfectamente que las redes sociales se presten a convocatorias y que por detrás de ellas también pueden existir intereses hegemónicos de cambio de régimen. No obstante, reducir todo lo que sucede en la isla a una teoría de la conspiración me parece muy simplista y justificativo. El gobierno cubano no reconoce tampoco la violencia policial ejercida a contrapelo de la Constitución hacia los manifestantes detenidos que sufrieron en muchos casos maltratos físicos y psicológicos. Muchos de ellos estuvieron durante varios días en paradero desconocido para sus familias. Esto debe investigarse y esclarecerse con transparencia. En el portal de análisis La Joven Cuba, del que soy coordinadora, hemos publicado ya el testimonio de Leonardo Romero y hoy precisamente aparece otra contundente vivencia de Alexander Hall, joven universitario, estudiante de historia, activista afrodescendiente de ideas socialistas. Mi opinión es que presenciamos el agotamiento definitivo de un modelo político, el modelo de socialismo burocrático. Nuestros gobernantes no logran hacer progresar la nación con los viejos métodos, pero no son capaces de aceptar formas más participativas con un mayor peso de la ciudadanía en la toma de decisiones. La Asamblea Nacional del Poder Popular, nuestro Parlamento, se ha llenado de representantes de la burocracia partidista y gubernamental miembros del Buró Político, del Comité Central, funcionarios políticos provinciales y municipales, ministros, viceministros, gobernadores, intendentes, directores de empresas, mientras los diputados provenientes de las bases populares han venido disminuyendo en número sostenidamente. Esto determina el carácter político que tuvieron las protestas, pues la presión de las mayorías desde abajo es lo que ha hecho evolucionar a los sistemas políticos desde la antigüedad hasta hoy. En el modelo de socialismo burocrático de partido único no se admite la participación real y espontánea de la ciudadanía en la actividad política. Esta condición discriminatoria es la que explica que ante el estallido social del 11 de julio el partido reaccionara de manera policial y no política.
el estallido social del 11 de julio, que es inédito en la historia del proceso socialista en Cuba, ha descolocado a la izquierda mundial, lo cual es perfectamente comprensible. No obstante, una pregunta se impone. ¿Es posible rechazar el bloqueo del gobierno de los Estados Unidos a Cuba y al mismo tiempo criticar la actitud del gobierno cubano ante estos hechos? La respuesta, a mi juicio, debe ser afirmativa. Ante todo, hay que tener claridad en que la relación geopolítica de Estados Unidos hacia Cuba ha sido profundamente imperialista desde antes de 1959. Se involucraron en la guerra hispano-cubana, no permitieron que el gobierno de Cuba en armas estuviera presente en la firma del Tratado de París. Se mantuvieron como tropas de ocupación y solo se retiraron cuando se adicionó a la constitución que dio origen a la República en Cuba, un apéndice en forma de enmienda que los autorizaba a intervenir si consideraban menoscabados sus intereses. Los Estados Unidos jamás rompieron relaciones con Cuba durante las dictaduras de Machado y Batista, a pesar de la violación flagrante de los derechos de las cubanas y cubanos. Se sabe que la hostilidad hacia la isla fue potenciada por el triunfo de una revolución que, antes de declararse incluso socialista, fue profundamente antiimperialista y nacionalizó propiedades en manos de compañías norteñas. El bloqueo, agravado por las dos legislaciones que asumen una postura extraterritorial, afecta las relaciones comerciales y financieras del gobierno cubano e incide en el agravamiento de la economía insular. Es un desafío al derecho internacional y a la soberanía de un Estado vecino. Por todo ello debe ser rechazado, pero además porque como estrategia geopolítica ha demostrado ser ineficaz. Desde el punto de vista humano, el bloqueo afecta al pueblo de Cuba y no directamente a la clase burocrática que dirige el país, a lo que se suma que ha servido como justificación a los errores de muchas políticas y decisiones internas oponerse a las apetencias imperialistas de Estados Unidos en Cuba es un imperativo ético de derecho que no debe debilitarse ni un tanto ante los hechos del 11 de julio. Al contrario, la oposición al bloqueo debe fortalecerse, pero apoyar acríticamente al gobierno cubano tampoco es aceptable. Muchos militantes de izquierda pueden creer que al criticar al gobierno de Cuba le hacen el juego al gobierno norteamericano pues se cuestiona a un país socialista. No es así. El modelo burocrático en Cuba ha debilitado el socialismo al negarse a reformarlo y cerrarse a la participación ciudadana. En Cuba se construyen se constriñen las libertades al que piensa diferente respecto al gobierno y se atreve a decirlo. Son violentadas personas que desean ejercer su derecho a pensar y expresarse, sean socialistas o no. Alumnos y profesores, algunos de ideas socialistas, han sido expulsados de las universidades por razones ideológicas. Muchas personas son detenidas en sus domicilios sin que se les hayan causado, son impedidas de moverse por las calles con agentes de seguridad del Estado que les amenazan y las pueden detener sin que exista una orden legalmente emitida que lo permita. Quizás muchos piensen que el Estado socialista se defiende de esa manera ante la hostilidad exterior. Sin embargo, el socialismo en Cuba como horizonte político del Estado se ha debilitado cada vez más. Un sistema socialista que no pueda ser influido desde abajo es una entelequia y el nuestro está atrapado en una contra contradicción flagrante. Hemos aprobado una constitución que no es viable pues una parte de ella tiende a sostener una situación de vulneración de libertades concretada sobre todo 
en su artículo 5 que declara la superioridad del partido único, mientras otra parte de la Constitución reconoce tales derechos y libertades en un Estado socialista de derecho. El pueblo cubano necesita cambios profundos, económicos, políticos y sociales. Estos deben ser internos, sin presiones ni injerencia exterior alguna por parte de Estados Unidos. Con este fin, la militancia antiimperialista mundial y norteamericana requiere presionar para la eliminación del bloqueo, que a fin de cuentas es una política imperialista, pero a la par solidarizarse con el pueblo cubano en la lucha por sus derechos. Muchas gracias. I want to thank Alina for such an informative and dynamic report uh, and analysis from the ground in Cuba. I hope everyone found it as helpful as I did. Um, and I want to let people know that that was pre-recorded um, to help with the translation and also because uh, we wanted to make sure there were no technical difficulties with, with poor internet connection from Alina's side. Um, before I move on to our second of the three speakers, I just want to let folks know that we will be taking questions. So feel free to write any questions you might have in the chat box, um, and we'll make sure um, to get to as many as we can um, in the time that we have allotted for those. So next, we are going to hear from Samuel Farber. Um, Sam was born and raised in Marianao, Cuba. He was active in the Cuban high school student movement against the dictatorship of Batista in the 1950s and has been involved in socialist politics for more than 50 years. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Brooklyn College and the author of several books on Cuba, including Cuba Since the Revolution of 1959 and The Politics of Che Guevara, Theory and Practice. Those are both Haymarket titles, um, as well as The Origins of the Cuban Revolution Reconsidered. He is a frequent contributor to New Politics magazine and is a member of internationalism from below. You can find his latest article, Why Cubans Protested on July 11th, in In These Times. Go ahead, Sam. I want to thank the sponsors uh, of this meeting, and in particular, I want to thank uh, Natalia, uh, Odette, and Alina, uh, who are here with us and other people like, that are not visible to you, that also have done a great deal to bring, bring this event about. Um, it will be very hard act to follow after Alina's uh, wonderful speech, but I will try in 20 minutes uh, to touch on essentially uh, three issues. Um, one, the nature of the movement of July 11th. Uh, two, uh, some uh, recent controversies that have happened, particularly in the in the U.S., uh, since the events of 7-11. And third, uh, where is Cuba going? This is the three topics I'll try to say something brief in the 20 minutes I have. Um, uh, I know that Alina already mentioned some of the features of the movement, which I agree with, and I want to, to uh, briefly elaborate on that from the point of view of what I think are the critical issues involved. Uh, it is uh, one month ago, uh, on July 11th, exactly one month, that a watershed a, a moment occurred in the 62 years since Batista was overthrown uh, on January 1st, 1959. Uh, there were protests, significant protests, in over 60 towns and cities in Cuba from east to west. Uh, this is absolutely remarkable. Uh, although there was some limited looting, the demonstrations were mostly peaceful, 
but angry. Uh, and in, in t I think it's very important to raise the point that there were both political and economic demands, political demands in the cry for freedom. And uh, it is also important, I think, and this was alluded by Alina, that even though, as she pointed out, she's absolutely right, the demonstrations were very mixed in composition. I think that the presence of the poorest Cubans and particularly very heavy participation by black people in Cuba is very uh, a striking development in this in this movement. Uh, not surprising uh, that uh, black Cubans are a very major presence in this movement when they are much likely, much less likely to get remittances from abroad than white Cubans are. And of course, the institutional racism that is manifested in many aspects of Cuban society, such as, for example, the tourism. Uh, I want to stress that there was no evidence, no evidence, even the government has not put forward any evidence suggesting or indicating that there were any right-wing slogans at all that were put forward by any of the thousands of demonstrators throughout the 60-plus uh, locations. Uh, nobody raised the issue of, quote-unquote, humanitarian intervention in Cuba. Nobody raised pro-U.S. or pro-Trump slogans as one can find, unfortunately, in, in Southern Florida. So I think that uh, that is important to understand. There were hundreds of people arrested. The exact number is very hard to tell us of now. Um, uh, and it's very, and the, the trials have begun. How many of the trials have begun? It's also unclear. But the trials have clearly begun, and typically they have occurred in these summary courts that are used in Cuba for minor uh, offenses, uh, and a characteristic of which is that they, the people who are being judged have no right to a defense attorney. And those tribunals are entitled to impose up to one year imprisonment. And in fact, several people already, but the undetermined numbers have uh, already been, uh, been sentenced. Uh, so by the end of the game, there might be several hundred people who are sentenced, and, and, and this would be obviously political prisoners. Of course, none of the brutalities of the police and the special forces won't be, in, won't be on trial here. It is only one side of the encounters are going to be on trial, and the other ones are going to get away scot-free with the abuses they committed. And this morning's edition of La Joa in Cuba of the, the journal, which Alina is a major uh, figure, has a very detailed article by um, a, a, a black Cuban uh, student at the university about the abuses that he, both he suffered and he witnessed. Now, this is like the first part of my comments. The second part, I want to talk about uh, some of the controversies that have happened recently uh, since July 11th, particularly in the context of the American liberal and left milieus. Uh, clearly, there is no disagreement about the causes of the crisis on the short term. There's a general agreement that the pandemic and the collapse of tourism obviously had a, a, had a heavy economic impact on, the, on, on Cuba. In terms of the longer-range causes, there has been uh, a very clear dichotomy uh, in, in the United States between the sympathizers of the Cuban government that completely ignore the internal political and economic situation in Cuba and only blame the blockade. This on one side versus the Cuban-American right wing and their sympathizers and supporters 
that uh, it completely ignored the very real, the very real economic damage that the blockade has uh, had on the on the Cuban society and economy ever since the 1960s, uh, and particularly in recent days uh, when the the uh, Trump uh, uh, severely uh, accelerated the punishments involved in the, in the blockade, and and Biden has shown very little uh, interest in softening them. If anything, the press has had articles claiming that the, or Biden, in fact, strengthened the blockade in some key respects. Um, for example, uh, the measures taken by Trump uh, that have not been changed is the fact that it makes it very hard for the Cuban government to operate in international banks because those banks are threatened uh, with, by the United States with the fact that if they, they, if they com have commerce with Cuba, they will not be able to have trade relations with American firms. So this is just one example of the many ways in which the blockade is definitely, it's a fact. I mean, it's, it's, there's no, no, no two questions about it. Now, let's, let's be clear that the blockade is not about democracy. What it is about maintaining imperialist control of the of the U.S. backyard, the backyard of the United States. Um, uh, uh, it is interesting that uh, the policy of the United States with the blockading Cuba has been entirely consistent with its policies in Central America and South America, trying to overthrow governments, trying to subvert uh, progressive governments of, of every kind. Um, and uh, and let alone what's happening in the rest of the world. It's very ironic that the United States, for example, condemns the the uh, theocracy in Iran, but supports the far worse theocracy in Saudi Arabia that makes Iran almost liberal by comparison. Um, uh, so I think that, that the, the, that's very clearly established what the effects of the blockade in Cuba are and its purposes and the reasons for existence. Um, at, the, at the same time, however, I believe that it is scandalous, and I, I will use that word, to talk about the criminal U.S. blockade without saying a word, I'm talking about the recent weeks, without saying a word about the events of July 11th in Cuba, and to talk about internal political situation in Cuba. And this was notably the case in a very unfortunate way with a very big ad that appeared in the New York Times significant time after the events in Cuba of July 11th, and not a word was said in that ad about what happened in Cuba, not a word. I, I have no problems with what the, uh, the, the ad in the Times said in terms of what it, what it did say, I agree with it. The problem was what it didn't say. The problem was that it just ignored the popular movement that had taken place. By the way, something similar happened in Latin America. Uh, for example, it's very similar to how uh, Andres, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, otherwise known as Hamzamlo, the president of Mexico, the progressive president of Mexico, uh, 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 sent material help to Cuba, which I think is admirable and should be applauded. But again, no mention by AMLO, by Lopez Obrador, in any, that anything had happened in Cuba at all. Uh, so it's uh, something that he would, he would not do if he was talking about any other Latin American country that had just witnessed a popular movement. I think that underlying the attitude uh, of many American liberals and radicals about uh, only talking about the blockade 
and keeping silent about internet about internal regime in Cuba is the notion, sometimes even semi-conscious, I would I would think, uh, that is very widespread in the United States, and I've been live, I've been here for a long time, so I've been able to witness it, which assumes that the Cuban regime and its actions are a mere, a mere, and no more than a mere reaction to U.S. policy, and doesn't respond at all to the politics and ideas of the Cuban leadership. So they essentially, in a very bizarre way, the these admirers of the Cuban government uh, do, do not give any agency to the Cuban leaders. They're merely reactors. They don't have an agency. They don't have ideas and politics of their own. They don't have even a notion of what a good society is from their point of view. So they're merely reacting to the U.S. So, and that, in fact, is historically untrue. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the very first year of the revolution in Cuba, there was a very serious, uh, submerged, but nonetheless real, struggle between at least two blocs in the, in the, within the government ranks. One was the Raul Castro Che Guevara and the old Cuban Communist Party, all, the old pro-Moscow Cuban Communist Party, versus on one hand the, the liberals who were in the regime and the national nationalists and imperialists, such as David Salvador, who was the head of the trade unions, Carlos Franke, who was the editor of Revolución, and they were defeated. And it was that defeat by the pro-Soviet. And at that time, Che Guevara was very pro-Soviet. Later, two years later, he became he started becoming critical of the Soviet Union, that, which I'm not going to go into here. But at that point, he was definitely pro-Soviet, and they won a submerged but real political struggle inside the Cuban government. And therefore, while of course the American blockade played a role that tilted the possibility of victory towards that alliance of the PSP, the old Cuban communists, uh, Raul and, and, and Che Guevara, nonetheless, they, these people had politics. They were not merely reactors to what the U.S. was doing. Um, and that with that victory, they proceeded to establish a, a, a Cuban system model on that of the Soviet Union. I said model, that doesn't mean that every single detail was the same as the Soviet Union, of course not. But the key outlines, the one-party state, the control of the economy, and all of those key issues were copied from the Soviet Union. And then there were certain variations on that theme, just like China had introduced variations on the Soviet theme as well. Um, so, nevertheless, um, in spite of the fact that many people uh, who oppose the blockade are, in my view, completely wrong about the Cuban regime, uh, the blockade must be opposed. Must be opposed first on anti-imperialist principles, because I believe that socialists or, or progressive people who are not anti-imperialists say there's something wrong with those politics. I think anti-imperialism is an essential principle. And also pragmatically, there's also a pragmatic case to make for anti-imperialism in Cuba. Not pragmatic in the sense that one would hope that once the blockade was removed, the Cuban government would become uh, uh, apostles of democracy. Not at all. Uh, I think that would be naive to expect something like that. They're not going to change. Well, that, what would change is the legitimacy and the support that that regime still enjoys among s on substantial sectors of the Cuban population, far, 
from unanimous, who knows if it's the majority or not, that's a debate that I, for one, have no idea about what the relative weight of those forces are. So that's the issue. It's under the pragmatic is to undermine the legitimacy of the regime in the eyes of those supporters of them, who are to a great extent support the Cuban government because of anti-imperialism. Uh, now, um, so, um, so, the, the conclusion is that, that we, of course, again, is that we need to oppose both the blockade and even more important, the highly authoritarian political system that exists inside Cuba. A highly authoritarian regime that has economic consequences. That's what people, in my view, do not come to grips with. It is not simply that democracy is a good thing, and I believe that democracy is a good thing from a political point of view, but in fact, an undemocratic regime like Cuba has a serious effect on the, on the economy. Uh, the lack of, of um, real information about what is happening is a product of the one-party state. There is no real information about what happens in that economy. Everything, everybody is watching out for his or her butt. And they're not going to admit a failure. So that uh, information that, it, that is, has failed, that is passed on to the higher level, is a distortion to begin with. Uh, so it's misinformation is systemic and misinformation that leads to poor economic uh, performance. At the same time, and even more important from my point of view, it's an economy, because of the nature of the political system, that lacks incentives. It doesn't have material incentives, and it doesn't have political incentives that would take the shape of worker control of their workplaces, that there would be an investment of the working class, be it white collar or be it blue collar, in doing things better, because they have a say over what happens there. And instead of that, uh, what you have is a, a continual indifference, carelessness, you know, try to get service for Cuban people who don't have the, the hard currency, try to get service in, in, uh, in, in any kind of services in Cuba, indifference, not caring a bit, because those people don't have an incentive to care about what service they're providing. And in, this is especially a problem in agriculture, because agriculture is the, 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 uh, the section of the economy that needs the most detailed attention because it, it continually faces the vagaries of the weather, you know, all sorts of things that cannot be planned ahead. And instead of that, you have clearly a Cuban government that, that as Pedro Monreal, a very important uh, Cuban economist, pointed out, is disinvesting in agriculture to put more money into hotels that even before the pandemic were nowhere near working at full capacity. So they're dumping money into hotels and mis, uh, mis, uh, paying uh, much less attention to agriculture. So uh, for all this reason, we cannot argue with, with, for the end of the blockade without arguing for the thorough democratization of Cuban society. We cannot argue for the thorough democratization of Cuban society without arguing for the end of the blockade. Now, do I have time? <laughs> Um, point three, uh, where is Cuba going? Well, um, I think that the reforms in Cuba that are, in my opinion, oriented 
to the establishment in Cuba, what I call the Sino-Vietnamese model, meaning highly authoritarian political system combined with opening to private enterprise and especially foreign private enterprise, that there are a lot of hesitancies and contradictions in establishing reforms in Cuba, particularly contradictions, because fundamentally, fundamentally, the, the Cuban bureaucracy is afraid of the development of a Cuban capital threat. Not foreign capital they can deal. Better they can deal with the threat of what Cuban capital will be. And because they are afraid of that threat, um, they will they're they're hesitant and contradictory in carrying out economic reform. Now, finally, in light of July 11th, will repression work? Will the the subtitle to my latest article that appearing in these times was, it, is it the beginning of the end of fear in Cuba? And that's a question that I think to me is critical. If it is the beginning to the end, then the government is in great trouble and the mass population is which is an element in the scene, which is the events of July 11th. That is a watershed. I really believe that it is a watershed. And therefore, from that, urges at this first level of demand, the, the demand for the freedom for demonstration and association. That is, to me, the most critical demand, that people in Cuba be free to demonstrate peacefully and to associate politically, peacefully, and that would be in practice a challenge to the one-party state. So I think that what we can express again is oppose the U.S. blockade and solidarity with the movement of 7-11. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, a lot packed into that talk, and I, I really, really appreciated the clarity of it. Um, before I move on to our third and final speaker, before we get to the q and I'm just going to remind folks again that you're welcome to put questions and, and Sam and Odette will, will respond to them um, as we have time. Um, so I'm, I'm extremely excited to introduce Odette Casamayor Cisneros, um, who's a Cuban-born scholar and writer. She's Associate Professor of Latin American Cultural Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, centered on Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx experiences, her current academic fiction and nonfiction works examine self-identification processes and the production of counter-hegemonic knowledge in the global African diaspora. She's the author of Utopia, Dystopia, and Ethical Weightlessness, Cosmological Reconfigurations in Post-Soviet Cuban Fiction, which is written in Spanish, and is currently writing on being Blacks, self-identification processes and counter-hegemonic knowledge in contemporary Cuban cultural production. Her latest article, My Heart Aches for Cuba and I Yearn for More Solidarity from the Global Left, can be found at truthout.org. Um, welcome, Odette. Thank you very much. Thank you for this invitation. I am extremely grateful um, to be able to share my insights with such admired colleagues, with uh, um, Alina and Samuel, and especially today, which is uh, August 11th. So we are the, actually one month, exactly one month um, after the um, uh, protests in, in, in Cuba. Um, I also appreciate particularly this uh, convocation 
to so many different perspectives, so at least three different perspectives. And this is something that I want to puntualize because it's so it's somehow exceptional in the latest uh, debates about the current Cuban situation that I have been uh, following. And uh, that's why I want actually start with this idea of experience because uh, um, from so our Cuban experiences, so how uh, we have to acknowledge everybody how our experiences, um, our relationship with Cuba um, um, conditions our approach to the situation, whether our Cuban experiences have been uh, limited to just being visitors or for those that migrated, uh, let's say, 40 or 50 or 60 or 20 years ago or just two day, two years ago or those that are still on the island like Alina does. Um, so all that conditions how or those that have never been there but have the memories from their parents, the experiences from their parents, all that conditions our um, approach on, on Cuba today. On my case, I, as you said, um, um, Natalia, I was born in Cuba in the 1970s. I was raised in Cuba during the 1980s and the 1990s, which means that uh, my Cuban socialist experience involved a period during the 80s, very solvent period in which we still were, well, the Cuban society was still sponsorized by the socialist system. And then the 1990s, when they started the, um, um, the special period, which was, was opened, this critical moment that was opened after the collapse of the socialist system in the 1990s. All that in order to, um, so I, I will just present some uh, elements concerning uh, uh, um, the situation in Cuba today. And one of them, the first one, would be addressing briefly the complexity of this uh, current Cuban crisis. Uh, I won't, so I, I will. Uh, I use. I, I like to use this uh, analogy of the uh, a pressure cooker. So to describe this multi-level asphyxia, um, uh, this complex combination of economic, political, and social factors that I won't uh, explain in, the, in in detail because just previous, uh, previous right now Alina just did. But I will add to um, Alina's account. Um, some let's say the more in, at the um, emotional level, um, how the Cuban situation, Cuban um, people from the since the nineties, and this is also related to what uh, um, Sam just said. We have been so at least since the, in the nineties, while, while I was still living in Cuba, we were we were continuously living in a situation of constant fear. Uh, feeling deprived of agency, of feeling of abandonment. And I, I, I insist from the 90s, maybe to the present. And I will say when I left in the middle of the 90s, but uh, Alina's account is showing us that this is, 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 is a, the situation is consistent and uh, um, um, it's still present today. And uh, the sense also that we don't have, so the Cuban don't have con uh, um, uh, control of control of the, on their lives. And um, as I said, this is something that I, I, 
I remember from my own experience in the 90s that I have studied uh, as a scholar in on my book, and uh, that is everlasting until today. And uh, the fact is that all those factors, uh, the, the, this uh, pressure, um, uh, the Cuban penury that uh, we have been uh, uh, somehow describing, describing has been, of course, has been increased by the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, COVID-19 crisis. And uh, I want just to, because Alina already talked about that, so I just want to uh, bring some data. Uh, the fact, so it's, it is uh, unbelievable and it's uh, also extremely sad for us Cubans uh, that our country that is known by being uh, this uh, 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 for, for his notorious um, health system for, um, um, social health um, so the health system is right now in the world so globally is the fifth country with most cases per 100,000 residents. So this is for us, is, but so we, we come, those protests come from this sense of fears of, uh, as I was saying, abandonment, this sense that we have to, no, no has control of sadness. And, um, and I believe also that the upheaval will continue, unfortunately. And why? And uh, because the problems that provoked it are still present, continue to exist. Uh, even the recent measures that uh, the, the government has implemented in the, in the last days, uh, like increasing the basic food basket, etc., they are not enough. They might seem like, they might work like a sort of band-aids, <laughs> but since the government has not done what it is, what they have really have, the Cuban government, government, what they have really have to do, which is at least shown some, to show some interest, interest in engaging in, um, in a dialogue with these people, a dialogue enabling enable the path to necessary, necessary, indispensable economical, social, and political change. The main problem, the, those main problems with, uh, will, uh, the main problems that lead to the rebellion will subsist, um, as will do the people's discontentment, frustration, and, and rage. Um, so I also, um, I think that we all three, um, uh, Sam and Alina, myself, we all consider that we we are we agree that the solution has to come with from from Cubans and mainly from those on the island, but also with the respectful and I insist in that word this respectful and humble support from us the members of the diaspora throughout the world and this is another element I want to emphasize not only from South. Florida. So we Cubans of the diaspora are not only uh, in Miami. Um, so it is an imperative to understand that the Cuban diaspora is not um, as, as Cuban on the island as Alina was um, describing in, uh, on her intervention, but also the Cuban diaspora it's not monolithic, <laughs> that we come from different backgrounds, that we left the island on different moments, like just Sam and I, uh, that we live in different regions of the United States and have different political positions. Therefore, our approach, uh, our approaches on Cuban has to be, um, are, are multiple. 
um, I also believe, and this is in another another element I, I want to uh, bring here, I believe that the United States and the um, international community, but specifically United States as, uh, for its vicinity with Cuba and uh, because of this large, its large uh, Cuban-American community, uh, that the United States and general international community, but the United States specifically can and must help the Cuban people. At this here, we are saying this, everybody's saying that, but the main problem is how to identify, identify that Cuban people, who or, who or what is the Cuban people. Even though the popular support of the Cuban revolution during its first years is undeniable, it is now reasonable to reconsider, especially the left, to reconsider the sometimes too fast and simplistic identification of the Cuban state with the Cuban people. The Cuban state is not necessarily and at all times in coincidence with um, the interest of the Cuban peoples. And it is not necessarily working to improve Cuban people's uh, uh, people living um, living conditions. The mass, I believe that the massive upheaval on, uh, on, on July, um, July 11th, and more importantly, it's violent repression by the state proved that there is not exactly the Cuban state and the and the people, and uh, I wanted to talk about this because some of the um, statements um, enacted by uh, um, by um, uh, organizations, leftists or uh, leftists of the organizations start saying, well, we support the Cuban people. But when we read the statement, it's actually supporting the Cuban state, the, the government. And uh, the confusion, I am not totally blaming them because it's true that the Cuban state has been, the government has been constantly presenting itself as the, as the, um, as the Cuban, as the, uh, as the voice of the Cuban people. And this brings us, even though I, well, I will talk about this information a little bit later. I will continue now with this idea of so the, necess the necessity to rethink what is uh, what do we understand uh, um, from, <clears throat> uh, from the Cuban people, and more specifically um, um, address or to think about its, in, its more impoverished uh, communities. And uh, of course, the, uh, the, in which the, the black Cubans are a majority. So um, I won't emphasize, although if somebody wants to, uh, uh, to, to talk more about that, we can do it later. But so I won't, I won't describe here the situation right now, the situation of black Cubans uh, on the island. I will actually limit myself to, to, ex to some examples and uh, some um, idea on uh, one idea. First, the black Cubans have very limited access to power to the, to the, to the extent that if I was telling before that most Cubans feel they don't have control of their life, they are, and they are feared, expression, etc. for black Cubans is even worse. Um, just going beyond the data, Let's just use the images. On uh, July 11th, we had first the images of the protests in which, uh, as everybody is saying, um, 
there was uh, noticeable. So the presence of black Cubans was noticeable, of course, because they live in those neighborhoods, etc. But then when we switch, and so the images that we that we have right after, which are uh, uh, when you know when when there was the not right after the right after and then the day after uh, of the president the uh, Canel uh, on this meeting with the on his meeting with them um, with uh, his working group, we have the totally different image. We have an image of a group of white. Cubans that actually, well, they they didn't seem to be suffering too much, <laughs> and um, this the, this group is the group that is uh, that was taking taking care of the people. This is the group that was that is deciding uh, the, the the future of the Cuban nation and of the people. So, just I will ask to remember these two images, these two sides of society, and just ref uh, to think about it. So what, again, so what if the Cuban people are those that have taken the streets or are those that are on, the, on, the, on, on that table discussing and are mostly white, and of course, are the indicator of how the uh, how white is the is the is the Cuban power is the power in Cuba as it is throughout the America. But Cuba is not an exception. White supremacy exists also in Cuba. Okay, and now I have another um, element uh, issue I want to um, bring here, and it's well, the left. Yes, the left, uh, and I want to believe that uh, in in general, right, the global left, as I um, write on, on my article. So I want to believe that there is an important lack of information, and Sam was talking about this right before, and this lack of information precludes many on the left, not everybody, of course, if not we weren't here, but many on the left, to abandon comfortable beliefs and apprehend the complexity of the actual Cuban situation and try to understand and see the actual Cuban people. There is clearly this a void of information, and this void has been filled through decades by Cuban and also the United States political political propaganda. So it's all political propaganda. Every so the, all the information we have is those two blocks, two polarities, two everything is going back to the uh, worst years of the uh, Cold War. And propaganda and political uh, binarism are not helping the Cuban people. Okay, I only have five minutes, <laughs> so um, we must use. And I think that in this, in, uh, in this, um, following this idea of misinformation, we must use this unprecedented opportunity. Um, to get to know what are the legitimate the, the legitimate uh, demands of the Cuban people, uh, so we have this lack of information. But now the outpours uh, on July 11th that weren't isolated cases of, vi of violence and that weren't um, um, so. As Salina and Sam has uh, described weren't just uh, marginal people as the government is consistently trying to um, to tell us, um, but now we can hear to them. Now, um, um, 
So, and, and what they hear, um, they, their demands, their cries uh, for justice, for freedom, for um, um, an improvement on their lives is uh, is totally. So, when we are lis- listening to them, we have to remember that. Everything that we think about Cuba, that's why I started with the idea of experience, is biased by our experience, but also influenced by those, by this political tokenization of uh, of Cuba, both from the left and from the right. So the symbolic capital of Cuba is too significant is uh, to not be con- being considered in any interpretation or decision taken vis-a-vis the Cuban situation, both from the left and from the right. And um, Cubans, for both, uh, Cubans' reality is a a weapon of ideological survival, which means that too often it is not the Cuban people, it is not the Cuban people which is at the core of the discussions, but external ideological positions. Um, Okay. And then I will, I will, I, I, I I wanted to talk about the embargo, but it would be, somehow similarly the same position as Sam, so I, I, I am skipping that. Um, I just think that um, was, um, yeah, that I don't think that from the left, we neither have to um, be exclusively in favor of the embargo or the government, so that there is not those two exclusive positions. But as Sam talked about this, so I am not going to to talk about that. And on the other hand, yes, we have to, to ask the government. But the last thing I will talk about is... Um, um, there is also, uh, and I have experienced that in the international community and the left and uh, many other uh, in the organizations, there is also this latent um, fear of the future. So people ask, what will happen in Cuba? What might happen if the changes in the reforms are implemented? Are you going to become like uh, the Republic of the, the Dominican Republic or whatever? I, I have heard so many uh, scenarios. And I will say just that we have to use our imagination and allow the people of Cuba to change their society if they consider it is necessary because the, the, the Cuban people, those are the ones that are actually experiencing it, experiencing it. Not, it not us, but them on the streets of, uh, of, of well, on the island. And I believe that it is either an act of arrogance or ignorance just to ignore their desire of change and consider that we know best, uh, that better than then what, uh, how their lives must be. So no, so also to remember that no social change has ever been accomplished parting from the idea of fear or the idea of uh, the fear of involution. We have to help, of course, the Cubans, um, so the Cuban people, and we have to give, if we can, we have to give the Cuban people the means to change their lives on the island and change their society. I think that I am, yes, I'm done. (laughs) Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Odette. That was wonderful. And I really, really appreciate you bringing kind of the, the view of, of information and, and experience to an audience that doesn't always get a chance to hear the, this side of it. I really appreciate it. Um, so we're going to move on to questions and answers. Um, before I do that, I just want to give another shout out to our co-sponsors, um, Internationalism from Below, Haymarket Books, and New Politics. Go to haymarketbooks.org and buy all the books on Cuba. If you're trying to brush up on this history and learn more, go to newpal.org that has hosted some articles about Cuba um, and um, check out Internationalism from Below, which is an organizing project um, of socialist activists that seeks to build transnational solidarity with and between movements for social justice and democracy. So I'm going to read the first, uh, again, feel free to put some questions in the chat box if you have some for our speakers. Um, I'm gonna read the first two and then either both Sam and Odette can come in on them or one or the other, however, however they choose. Um, the first one was in response to Alina's um, talk. Uh, the question is, will Alina be repressed for this? And is the 800 um, number accurate of the 800 um, protesters arrested and still being held? And the second question, um, let, let's let's keep it to that question first, and then and then we'll move on to the to the next one. So the question is, will 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 Alina be repressed for putting forward a statement like this to a to a U.S. audience? Is Alina able to uh, or is? Um, because of because Alina's was pre-recorded, unfortunately, she's not oh. going to be able to join us here. Oh. I know, unfortunately, it was directed to to Alina, of course. Um, and hopefully, we can we can share this with her. Um, Sam, did you want to did you want to say something? Just... La Joven Cuba, which is the publication for which Alina is a, a central contributor, has been harassed in numerous instances in terms of the. Uh, state security, Seguridad del Estado, trying to uh, prevent the wider distribution of that means. In terms of arrest and imprisonment, to, at, to the, at this point, I don't think that has happened yet, but they have been harassed, that's for sure. Uh, what will happen? Keep in mind, it's very important to understand that there is, in Cuba, there is uh, an internet culture that increasingly Cubans have access to because the number of people who have access to the internet has grown quite significantly in the last few years. But nonetheless, um, uh, Cubans like Alina, people living in Cuba like Alina, do not have access at all to the regular media. That is, the all the regular media is monopolized by the Cuban government with the ideology department of the Central Committee of the Cuban Communist Party giving quote-unquote orientations to the media organs about how they should cover things. So, again, in the case of the internet, uh, uh, the repression has been uh, so far, certainly in the case of La Joven Cuba, more on the question of harassment and uh, the creating obstacles to their more successful distribution. That's my understanding. Thank you, Sam. Um, I'm gonna read two more questions. Um, is Cuba capitalist or socialist? What real possibility, and this is the second question, what real possibility exists to build democratic socialism in Cuba? 
What do you think of it? <laughs> I let you do it. You start. <laughs> I go ahead. Well, it's certainly not socialist. Uh, I think it is in transition, as I try to hint, if not fully developed in my thing, to what I call the Sino-Vietnamese model, which is a form, in my opinion, of state capitalism, uh, like like Vietnam and China today. Uh, but however, uh, the, the Cuban government has been very contradictory in proceeding to follow that model. As I said before, I think the, the, their main fear, they're not afraid of foreign investment, although they haven't been very, uh, they haven't done a lot to facilitate that, but they are, they're, I think they're less afraid of foreign investment they, than they are of the development of a Cuban, of a Cuban uh, small business, if not big, certainly if not big business, a class of people that they're afraid of because that they, they, it would inevitably result, and I think they're right on that point, uh, in their diminishing of their monopoly, the monopoly control of the, of the, of the country. Yes, um, echoing um, Sam, um, I go back to what I was saying, and it's, um, I, I think that not only related to Cuba, but I think in general, it will be um, um, it will be useful for us to go beyond those the polarities. Cuba is socialist or capitalist. Not even concerning Cuba in general, our Q, current global situation everywhere in the world is demanding us to go to see beyond um, this. Uh, 20th century uh, polarities. So um, Cuba, and all, specifically in the sense of uh, uh, not only Cuba, but uh, all um, countries that are not uh, self-sufficient. And in the Caribbean, non-island in the Caribbean is self-sufficient, never has been, uh, because we don't have the natural resources to 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 um to uh, to to self uh, sustenance, so it means that we are what we can. So I, I'm saying we, even if I don't live right now in Cuba, but um, in Cubans are what we can. Uh, although in the Cuban case, the Cuban government government would have been able to if if this as we have been telling through this all this time, um, if they have been able to listen to their people, to work with the people and not against the people. And I am uh, stepping a little bit out of the specifically uh, economic uh, question to go to the political one. It is unthinkable in a socialist society, it means in a society that per se is supposed to represent uh, not represent, but as I said, work for the people uh, to repress its own people using extreme violence. Uh, they have sent the special troops 
special troops to um, to, uh, to the street to re- uh, to uh, um, to repress the protesters. And when I say them, it's the government, of course. And these special troops, los um, boinas negras, the black birds, they are trained. So when I was a kid in Cuba, I was afraid of them. They were the elites. They are the elite troops. The elite troops, and they are trained to defend the country from. Um, especially for external invasions, for the really critical moments. When I, as a Cuban, living out of the country, but that was raised there, that I, when I saw the images of the black barracks, Los Boinas Negras, in las calles, on the streets, uh, beating the people and showing their weapons, I... I, I, it was extreme. The least I can say is that it was for me personally, emotionally, extremely painful. And it doesn't represent these images. Those images didn't um, represent what I thought that, and I was not thought what I learned in my, I, I was raised in Cuba, so I was raised in the, <laughs> on the socialism, what I learned, um, my beliefs of what socialist, uh, or at least, um, um, popular uh, uh, governments or government based in the popular um, support should have done. Thank you both for those answers. Um, I'm going to try to get to as many of the questions as possible because we so rarely have this opportunity to have you here to answer them. Um, what? Um, how how can the left support with Cuba without enabling imperialism? What actual actions can we take? Um, as I have said uh, also, um, listen to the Cuban people. Um, I understand, I understand many on the left and how difficult, I was thinking that the other day I had actually this image. Um, and I was, uh, I just read the first days after the uh, the, the protests. Of course, the, how um, Bolsonaro, the president uh, of Brazil, uh, the Brazilian president, he, of course, he was uh, supporting the people on the streets, of course. And I just imagine uh, a black, uh, an a, 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 a imagine, you know, uh, uh, um, an hypothetic uh, uh, black activist, female activist in Brazil that is fighting against a government that will probably um, get, got uh, Marielle, Fra- Marielle Franco or any other activist killed uh, or repressed, how difficult it could be for these activists in Brazil, for instance, to for a moment, we agree with President Bolsonaro. So I understand the left. It's not that I, <laughs> I, I don't, but I would ask the left to, to, to step outside of their comfort zone, not everybody, but those that for those uh, is difficult, to, um, to, see, to see with human eyes, the Cuban people and not with political eyes. As I have said, maybe not here, but in another moment, Cuba is not a, is not a political trademark. The people there asking for claims uh, and claiming for many things, 
they are human beings and they deserve our respect and to be listened. So this is what I will ask. The only that as a first step, just listen to what they have said and not imagine that they are wrong and at least give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and um, remember that they are experiencing their, their lives. So they, they, they are the ones who knows. It is impossible for somebody that just go to Cuba, visit Cuba in a certain moment to, to, to pretend that he or she or whoever it is can um, um, understand totally the Cuban existence. They're, they're, as as, uh, as uh, Alina was telling us, it's so heterogeneous, so, so many views, so many different situations that it is impossible to um, to use only one uh, one uh, one framework to understand that. We have to listen to all voices. Okay, can I add something to that? Yeah, I I, I completely support what what Odette said, and I I just want to add. Uh, a small point, but I think it's important. That is, that there's nothing either logical or political that says that to vigorously oppose U.S. imperialism and the blockade, that you have to provide sympathy or so political support to the Cuban government. Uh, those things, and in this context, I must I think that some credit should be given that that this time around, both AOC. And Bernie Sanders made that distinction, which they haven't unfortunately always made. But this time around, uh, they hit the nail on the head. You know, both AOC and Bernie Sanders said that they were against uh, U.S. Ag ag economic aggression in Cuba, but also to the right of the Cuban people to demonstrate and uh, determine their fate. So I think that it, that example shows that it is possible to do it, and uh, and I think more should be doing it that way. Um, the next question, um, what is the situation of the health system currently um, and international health workers? So uh, uh, the question is, uh, I don't think we can answer that question. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I will, if possible, that person, if you can, uh, precise exactly what, um, what does, uh, what do they mean about that? Uh, obviously I can't get clarification, but I think just like giving a sense of what the health, um, situation looks like in, in Cuba right now. Oh, okay. I thought it was. Uh, oh no, no. There, there we can talk. Of course, I thought it. I, I don't know why for a minute I was thinking that it was the internationalist help. No, okay. No, the situation. Yeah, okay. No, that's. This is. Yeah, this is crucial. Um, the health situation right now, and again, is from my from the data I receive here. So I am. I. It's been. Uh, almost it was one year and a half. I haven't been in Havana, so in in Cuba, so I, I don't have precise information. So in situ information, but uh, it's critical. Um, so it has been already critical before <laughs> before COVID. Uh, so Cuba is lacking of uh, medical supplies and uh, other kind of stuff, and and actually the hospitals that. Uh, 
they were in a precarious situation even before COVID, and this is something that I experienced on my visits. Um, the situation with the health uh, economic, so the economic situation specifically addressed to the to the health uh, uh, system is interesting. Interesting in the sense that. Yes, the Cuban government says, says that mm, they don't have enough uh, resources to keep the health system at the same level it was, let's say, in the 80s. And um, we can, and of course, they are blaming the embargo, which is true, yeah, of course. But at the same time, I wonder, and I go back to the powerful images of the special troops be in the streets, beating people and with all these weapons. And, uh, and I say, well, we don't have, um, we don't have gas. So they, ha they say in Cuba, the, the government, that they don't have gas for ambulances, for instance. People are dying in, the, in, the, in their houses because they are in, there is not ambulances for um, transportation. But then suddenly the president said, um, well, everybody to the streets, the revolutionarios a la calle, and there were all those buses with using gas that were so the gas is there for the buses too. So the um, supported supporters of the of the government can go to this place. So, so they they are not going walking. No, they are being carried by the government, and then there is money to train the police and to train the so. There is money to repress the people, but there is no money for the ambulances. So if there is something there, some math to be done. But going back probably to the question more, more, uh, more specifically related to the COVID crisis, um, there was another important element that actually was playing an important role in the protest. And it's the, the, fa the fact that, uh, well, numbers of cases were increasing and people were um, was were dying that's why this is very important so when we were talking when some was talking before about the cubans um, are, are not afraid anymore and they said it it was present throughout the protest this idea of no les tenemos miedo we are not afraid cuban people were doing saying that and this is crucial and um so one of the uh, demands, uh, were, so, sorry, and, and, and they were on the streets because they weren't afraid and because our, so their families, our families, our friends are dying of COVID. And at the same time, the government didn't stop. Right now, I don't know what is the actual situation after the protest, but at the protest, at the, that, until that moment, the, moment, the government never stopped um, building new hotels while there was the crisis. So there was also gas for the, for the construction of the new hotels that we don't know even when Cuba will receive tourists again. So it... it, it um, it is important. This all this is important, so the people can. Oh, okay. So the people can uh, understand that <laughs> I received that message that I got. Uh, so the people can can uh, so can understand this sense of abandonment that they were that they feel in 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 Cuba, and then continuing with the well, the situation I would say is absolutely critical, and I repeat. I think it was yesterday, 
Cuba was the fifth country in the world with uh, most uh, infections of COVID. Um, and uh, they are they are struggling. Um, there is some help, actually, and this is extremely beautiful, and I want to bring it here in only one minute. And it's uh, how uh, we all Cubans, we have been trying, so we, we have been solidary and outside of the country and trying to send medicines and uh, medical supplies to the island. And even some of some of us, so, some some good um, friends from the diaspora has gone to Cuba and are organizing this, uh, um, so the distribution of medicines on the ground. So I, I, I won't say who, but they are, she knows who it is, yes. Uh, Natalia, can I speak? Yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 just to add to what Oder is saying, I think that on one hand, you have this uh, admirable uh, development in the research centers in Cuba and the development of the vaccines, which I think has to be recognized as uh, as what it is, uh, an admirable achievement. On the other hand, a government that because those vaccines developed in Cuba were not ready in time, they were not ready in time, they refused to ask for international help. And we're talking about international health from people they are in good relations with. I'm not talking about asking the United States. I'm talking about COVAX. I'm talking about the World Health Organization with which the Cuban government has good relations. And they would not ask for help from them. And therefore, the, with the Cuban vaccines being late and their refusal to ask for international help, there was that gap in which all this explosion of cases uh, happened. And by the way, you know, in a situation where tourism was minimal, that is some Russian tourists are coming to the Keys because Cuba is really an archipelago, it's not a, an island really. So they, in isolated parts, they have brought a certain number of tourists, particularly from, from, from Russia, but, and they had, there's no reason to believe that they had any significant contact with the Cuban population. So these are endogenous uh, causes. And I suspect, and this is a hypothesis, this is a hypothesis, I have no support for this whatsoever, but I, I would investigate the degree to which uh, a housing congestion may have contributed to this. That would be a hypothesis for which, of course, I don't have, I'm not there, and I, I haven't done investigation of this at all. And to my knowledge, it hasn't been done. Maybe it has, and I don't know about it, but that is a, a source of uh, of uh, a potential uh, development of COVID, because the housing issue, while the Cuban government made uh, advances, important advances in education and health, as we all know, on the housing question has been a perennial, I mean perennial crisis in Cuba uh, on the housing front. Um, so I just wanted to add that. Thank you. I'll also point people to um, Sam wrote an article about this in New Politics about Cuban doctors abroad appearances and realities that people should check out, which also touches on some of this. 
Um, so unfortunately, we're running to the end of our time, which I, you know, obviously there's never enough time. And especially on this, um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read some of the final some some, some of the other questions that have been posed. And I'm going to give you each about, a you know, a couple of minutes. You can pick and respond to what you choose, um, knowing that we're going to need to pick up and figure out this this conversation more going forward um, and how valuable this space is. So um, um this is a question for Sam. Uh, what do you think about the DSA International Committee's position on Cuba? Another question, what frustrates you about how the right and left media report on Cuba? For Odette, what did you think of the Black Lives Matter statement on Cuba? And then finally clarify, is it an embargo or, or blockade? What can we do to stop this imperialist policy? And again, we only have a couple of minutes. I just wanted to acknowledge that there are more questions and give you each an opportunity to um, have a last a last say on, on this event um, and a final reminder that there will be a what's happening in Iran meeting um, a week from today at 5 p.m. that people should tune in for. So um, give our speakers a last a last word here. Go ahead, Ovid. Okay, well, I will center maybe in the Black Lives Matter um, um, statement, which absolutely I, I was extremely sad to read because I uh, I am and I have been, I am, and I will always be a supporter, not of Black Lives Matter, but of any um, struggle or all the struggle of the Afro African diaspora, the global African diaspora. Uh, but the problem, it, what Black Black Mother did was an example of exactly what I think we have to avoid from the left, which is to stick to our to the political statement, not to be able to go beyond this um, um, confrontation. So I guess I also understand Black Black Mother. They want the U.S. the U.S. government to be accountable, which is okay, but it is totally irrespectful of the Cuban people. Um, yeah, um, well, I, I, I am not a member of DSA. I have, <clears throat> I, like the rest of the members of internationals from below, I followed closely what's happening in DSA. From my understanding is that the debate this time was more indirectly about Cuba because it was a discussion of whether or not to join the Sao Paulo Forum, in which Cuba plays an important part. So that's, uh, and in fact, I was asking Natalia before the meeting started about what, what in fact was argued uh, at the convention. So uh, I don't, from what I understand, I don't think that the the current current, and let me stress that uh, environment. On, in DSA at, at the national level, because I think in the, when we talk about DSA, we have to make a big distinction between the local chapters and the national level. And at the national level, hasn't been, quite honestly, very friendly to the cause of uh, liberation, democracy, and and, and 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 socialism in Cuba at the national level. I don't think it has been positive or friendly, and I am very much a critic of it. Thank you so much. Um, let's continue this conversation over time. And thanks again to Odette and Alina and Sam and to everybody who's participated. Um, solidarity and let's listen to the Cuban voices that, that, are, that are out there and, and build a left that can take on imperialism and authoritarianism. Solidarity, comrades. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast 
and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.